everybody. I'm Clay Nichols, playwright of The Speaker Speaks. The world was a very different place in 1989 when, as an undergraduate, I wrote the first draft of this play. President Bush didn't need his HW yet. The Soviet Union was still a thing, but just barely. Back then, it seemed like a good idea to reacquaint folks with a humble and principled Texan who, as a congressman and Speaker of the House, played a role in such a broad swath of American history. More than 30 years later, seems like it might be time again to hear a few words from Mr. Sam. Act one of the play opens in February 1961. Sam Rayburn is 79 in the last year of his life. We find him in the Speaker's office of the U.S. Capitol building. Anna, get me the vice president on the phone. Lyndon, this is Sam. I need you to tell the president something for me. I would tell him myself, but I want you to do it. Why? Lyndon, did you ever hear the story about the woman who had two sons? One went to sea, and the other became vice president. Neither of them was heard from again. I know you're not going to let that happen, Lyndon, and neither is Jack Kennedy. He needs you in the Senate, and he knows he couldn't have won that election without you on the ticket. He'll listen to you more than anyone on the Hill. All right. You tell the president that the 21-day rule is house business, and I don't want to hear another single goddamn word about it from the White House. I know Jack didn't like it here very much, but he goddamn well ought to remember how I feel about people sticking their noses into house business. I don't want to have to take that boy out to the woodshed and give him a lesson in the separation of powers, but I will if I... All right. All right, Lyndon. Fine. I don't give a damn what the president thinks. Just tell him that it's my ass on the line, not his. <laughs> Shit, yeah. And if a frog had wings, it wouldn't bang its ass a-hopping. <laughs> How are Lucy and Ladybird? Good. Good. All right, now listen up, Lyndon. I was watching you at lunch today, and you didn't do a damn thing but pick at that food. Your ass was in that chair, but your head was on the damn Senate floor. Now listen to me, Lyndon. This government ran long before you were born, and it's going to run long after you're dead, which is exactly what you're going to be if you don't take better care of yourself, son. All right, fine. Why don't you meet us downstairs this afternoon, and we'll strike a blow for liberty. I'll mix you a bourbon and branch. I'll be here. The other day, this young reporter comes into my office and asks me, Mr. Speaker, how many presidents have you served under? I said, son, I have served with eight. I haven't served under any. Never intend to. The same boy asked me if I would like to have been president. Frankly, and I know no language but the language of candor, I am one of the few people in this whole town who can honestly say that he does not want to be president. When I became Speaker of the House, I achieved everything I have ever wanted. Hell, I'd, I'd rather be Speaker than any ten senators. The House of Representatives is my love and my life. 
It is my greatest romance. I'm mighty glad that you are listening today. And I'm especially glad when younger folks take time to listen. As I have grown older, I have come more and more to appreciate young people. Their bodies are not only more resilient, their minds are too. There is a French saying to the effect that the old complain of the conduct of the young only when they themselves can no longer set a bad example. For myself, I shall be old only when I find myself sitting around crying that the young folks are going to hell in a hack and the country is going to ruin. Which it is, you know. Oh, this country is always being ruined. Go to the library, read the newspapers of 50 or 100 years ago. It was being ruined then, too. The president was incompetent. We couldn't possibly pay our debts. And since Congress was composed of amiable idiots and outright thieves, you couldn't count on them for anything. Well, it ain't been ruined yet, despite what the old fogies say. Of course, I'm always glad to meet young folks my own age, too. After 50 has been the best part of my life. But consider this. 59 men, most of them young men, gave us our Constitution. There was only one old man at the Constitutional Convention, Benjamin Franklin, at 81. George Washington was only 55. Alexander Hamilton, 30. And James Madison, who wrote more of the Constitution than any other man, was only 36 years of age. And today... Here in 1961, we have a young man in the White House, Mr. John F. Kennedy. Fine young man, sharp as a tack, and I think he will make us a fine president. He is the best listener I've ever seen. He understands a situation when you tell him about it, and does something. And he's got a lot of bright young men working for him. Of course, I would feel better if some of them had run for sheriff just once. Truth be told, I have not always had such a high opinion of young Mr. Kennedy. He was a piss-poor congressman. Came to the House by the election in 1946. He and Richard Nixon came at the same time. Oh, Jack was a real mess. Late everywhere, always missing committee meetings, and he always looked kind of sickly and spare. Then he moved to the Senate, and I've always said that nobody who amounted to anything in the House ever went to the Senate. But he has come out pretty well, I think. Wish I could say the same for Mr. Nixon. Believe it or not, I was a young man myself once. My youth, however, was a pretty far piece from Mr. Kennedy's. Didn't see too many yachts on that little North Texas cotton farm where I grew up. But I resent those who said we were poor. My mother and father raised 11 children, and we always had plenty to eat and a roof over our heads. But it was hardly the kind of romance that many of our city friends like to make farm life out to be. When I hear city folk talk about the peaceful beauty of pastoral life, well, I have half a mind to take them out to my ranch in Bonham and let them shovel cow manure for eight to twelve hours. I'd like to watch all that romance they read in a novel somewhere turn into blisters and sore feet. I may sit in the speaker's chair, but you're looking at a $30,000 a year cotton picker, so I know 
that farming can be a damn humdrum life. As a young boy on Sundays, I would sit on the fence and just wish to God somebody would ride by on a horse or drive past in a buggy, anything to relieve my loneliness. Loneliness consumes people. But we did have a little excitement now and again. When I was 15 years of age in 1897, Joseph Weldon Bailey, my predecessor in Congress, came to speak to his constituents at the Bonham, Texas fairgrounds. I pleaded for days with my father for permission to go. When he finally agreed, I set about plotting how I would manage to meet the great congressman. Over and over again, I practiced my introduction, and I imagined myself striding right up and shaking the great man's hand. Well... The big day came, and it was raining buckets. But I wasn't going to let that stop me. I made the several miles from our farm at Flag Springs on a mule to the covered tabernacle where Bailey was about to deliver his speech. The place was jammed, and it was pouring, but when I saw all those rich town folk in their fancy store-bought clothes, well, I decided to stay outside. I crawled around back to an open flap, peeked in, and there he stood. He had a fine physique and bearing, a noble head with flowing hair and ascot, and a command of the oratory the likes of which I have not heard since. I squatted there and listened for two hours, trying to memorize every word as he spoke it. I could still feel the water dripping down my neck. When he was through, I slipped around to the entrance, my introduction at hand, but when he came out, he was surrounded by important-looking people and accompanied by a finely-dressed lady, and I got shoved out of the way. I followed him for five or six blocks until he got into a streetcar. The streetcar pulled away, and I just stood there for a while, a soaking, wet, skinny little farm boy. I decided then and there, but someday, I would go to the Congress and be just as big a man as Joe Bailey. I guess you might say that was a pretty lofty ambition for a wet boy with homespun clothes, but there's not so much difference in the abilities of people. Anybody who has good common sense, and, and that's all the sense there is, can make good if they apply themselves and have a sound body and a sound mind. Well, as a boy, I got right down to the hard work. Every Sunday come hell or high water, I would march right down to the barn, climb up on a trough, and deliver a stirring oration to the livestock. I've learned a thing or two about public speaking since those days. Leave off the five-cylinder words. Don't use tongue-twisting words. Tell the truth as you see it, and folks will say, you give a pretty good speech. The steam that blows the whistle never will turn the wheel. Myself, I just get all the facts together in my head and start talking. I'll say it all before I'm through. I hate reading my script, as sometimes I have to do on radio or on TV. And I detest the practice of men in public life using ghostwriters. A man ought to know what he wants to say and stand up and say it. Or else keep his damn mouth shut. President Calvin Coolidge once said something to that effect. 
which I think every politician should read over and over again. Now, he was supposed to be this great silent man who was too busy thinking about all these great questions to look up and talk. Anyway, somebody was kidding him about his silence, and he said, I learned early in life that you don't have to explain something you haven't said. He was a pretty smart fella for a Republican. The man who held this office the longest but What? What? Uh, Allie, you've had that damn intercom on your desk for ten years now. I think it's about time you learn to use it. Bobby Kennedy. <sighs> All right, damn it. Put him through. I swear, that boy just loves to give me a pain in the ass. Hello, Bobby. Ho, ho. Hold on there, son. What? What's this? Oh, I see. The most important issue which faces the American people. Huh? Well, that's interesting, Bobby, because the fellow who called this office right before you did, he had the most important one, too. I got a lot of important ones coming through here. Y yes. Yes, I think it's a pretty strong bill. But I also think it has some problems which need to be thoroughly considered in committee. Well, that takes time, son. Well, well, let me ask you this. How's that federal judgeship appointment coming along for my friend Sarah Hughes? Old? Son, everybody looks old to you. Your bill? Well, as soon as Sarah Hughes gets that appointment... That bill of yours is just going to slide through the house like a hog on ice. Until then, it's just going to cool. Smart ass. And now where was I? The man who held this office longest before me was Henry Clay, the great compromiser. Over the years, a number of people have wanted to compare me to him, but I am not a compromiser. I'd rather be known as a persuader. I try to compromise by getting people to think my way. If you tell the truth and the reasons for your actions, people will usually get right on an issue. I found that to be true from the moment I ran for my first public office, a seat in the Texas legislature. <laughs> I still remember that first campaign. Oh, this was way back when I was just a child at 24 and still had a little hair on my head. I decided I needed to look a little older and more dignified, so I went out and bought me a black wool suit and a tie. Now, I don't know how many of you have given a political speech wearing a black wool suit under a Texas summer sun, but if you haven't, you can take my word for it that it was hotter than hell on a Sunday. I nigh on melted that day. But I did look mighty dignified, sort of like an undertaker. I remember one day I was just walking around the streets of Commerce, Texas, sweating like a plow horse and looking for hands to shake. Well, I came up to a general store, and there was a very elderly gentleman with a long white beard sitting out front in a rocking chair. I walked right up to him and shook his hand and asked, Sir, have you lived here in Commerce all your life? That old boy just switched his jaw from one cheek to the other and said, not yet. <laughs> I won that election by about 400 votes, so I was off to the state capitol in Austin. At that time, a Texas legislator made about $5 a day, which is probably a good bit more than we deserved. <laughs> <laughs>
it's hard for me to describe what the Texas state legislature was like back then. Let me say that the only reason that the Capitol building is still there is because it was just too big to carry off. Oh, it was a wild time. Occasionally, the high-minded debates were resolved by a boxing match on the floor. You had people hooting and hollering and carrying on like to raise hell, and at night, the boys would just move the whole show out of the Capitol and onto the streets of Austin. So-called lobbyists would do you just about any favor you asked, from buying you a beefsteak at the Driscoll Hotel to showing you a time at a little place called the Chicken Ranch, just outside of town. Well, I didn't mind the boys having their fun, but somebody had to stay behind and mind the store. I took my money and used it toward achieving my goal of making a lawyer. I took classes at the University of Texas Law School and passed the Texas Bar in 1907. Shortly thereafter, I began practicing law as a partner at the firm of Steger, Thurman, and Rayburn in Fannin County, Texas. Yes, sir, I'll be right here in my office. The check is on the desk? All right. I'll have the brief on your desk in the morning. Lord Almighty. Lord Almighty, there's got to be a mistake here. This can't be right. Mr. Thurman, Mr. Thurman, I just want to ask you a question about this check here. I think there's been some kind of a mistake. It says here, pay to the order of Mr. Sam Rayburn the sum of $500. I don't know where you get this figure. The biggest case I've had all year was that $75 I got for old Bill Parker when his cattle died from some bed. Yes, Tom, I realize that I am a partner. Retainer fees? Retainer fees from who? Oh, the Santa Fe Railroad. Tom, you know I can't take this money. Well, I don't care if it's legal, Tom. I can't do it. It wouldn't be right. Well, it's fine for you and Hal, but... I am a public servant, and if I take this now, they are going to expect something in return when I'm back at the legislature. I can't be bought, Tom. You can just tell those railroad boys that. Sam Rayburn cannot be bought. Well, thank you for being understanding. I'm just trying to do the right thing. God damn. That was a lot of money. The Speaker Speaks is presented by Jarrett Productions. To help us continue producing work of this kind, please consider making a donation at jarrettproductions.com. Written by Clay Nichols, The Speaker Speaks was adapted and performed by David R. Jarrett and produced by Will Douglas. Sound design, mixing, and editing by Craig Brock. Technical assistance provided by our friends at Make Every Media. Additional support from Natalie Garcia, Carlo Garcia, and Aaron Shalaba. This audio theater presentation is based upon the Public Domain Theater Company's 1999 stage production of The Speaker Speaks, An Evening with Sam Rayburn, directed by Robbie Polgar. If you would like more information on Jarrett Productions, including past and future shows, visit our website or follow us on social media. For more from Mr. Sam, check out our second installment, available now.